Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization. All our content is free and ad-free thanks to our generous donors. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. I had the privilege of speaking recently with Jitsunma Tenzin Palmo, one of the world's most revered Buddhist teachers, and one of the very first Western men or women to become ordained into the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo spoke with me at length about the role of women in Buddhism, including the great contemporary and historical injustices that female practitioners have endured. She also shared her wisdom on the nature of mind and simple, powerful ways to meditate in the modern world. Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo is a fully ordained Tibetan Buddhist nun in the Drukpa lineage of the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism. She is an author, teacher, and founder of the Dongyu Gatsal Ling Nunnery in Himachal Pradesh, India. She's best known for being one of the very few Western yoginis trained in the East, having spent 12 years living in a remote cave in the Himalayas, three of those years in strict meditation retreat, and for having made a vow to attain enlightenment in the female form, no matter how many lifetimes it takes. Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo, it's such an honor to have you join us on A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. I'm very inspired by your life story, as it was told in Vicki McKenzie's book, Cave in the Snow, and also by your continuing wonderful activities in your life. So thank you so much for taking time out of those important activities to talk to us. I thought I would just start out by asking you what's important to you in your daily life right now at the Abbey as you're mentoring young women who've committed to a Buddhist path. Well, basically just making sure that our nuns here receive the right kind of education, especially a good Dharma education there or studying philosophy. Along with the study, also we emphasize practice because so often, especially in the Tibetan system, either you do study or you do ritual or for the few, you do uh, meditation practice, but you don't combine all three, not all at one time. And so what is different in our nunnery of Dutyugatsaling is that the nuns not only do a full study program, including debate, but they also do retreat practices and they also do ritual. And they're quite ritual masters at this point. So my feeling is for all of them to gain that kind of confidence, that inner confidence 
which normally nuns lacked because of being so overlooked. Now, in these times when nuns are not overlooked, where they are very much encouraged to gain that inner sense of good self-esteem, they need to be competent in all areas. They practice meditation, they also study, and they also perform rituals. So that's what I tried to keep going during our times throughout the year. From the tradition I'm most familiar with too, the Galukpa, it seems that sometimes in the monasteries and the abbeys, you'll study for even a decade before you start much meditation. Is that the case? And how have you changed that? And how's it working? Well, I mean, as I say, I'm always saying to the nuns, it's not enough to have it all up in your head. You've got to bring it down into your heart. You've got to become what you're studying. And so every day they do some shamatam practice as well as doing rituals, two hours of ritual every day. But also every year they do two months of silent retreat. So if you can imagine a hundred nuns all keeping complete silence and they're very strict for two months, they immerse themselves in their practice because I think it's very important that they should gain actual experience from their own practice rather than merely just trumpeting out what they've studied and, and been taught. They love it. And it, it, of course, engages a whole different part of the brain as well as anything else to actually do some practice apart from just intellectual endeavors. This is what we try to do. And also we have a long-term retreat center. We have about 10 nuns now in long-term retreat. The majority of them have done at least nearly 12 years retreat now. Mm. And they are training to become yoginis trained by the yogis in our monastery. So there's also that section, which is very much respected by all the other nuns. For people who are less familiar with retreat and the benefits of retreat, could you talk a little bit about what that does to your mind and what the benefits are? Well, that, the whole point is to give an opportunity to become completely immersed in one's practice with a minimum of external distractions. This is one of the reasons why one keeps silent, because outer silence helps to reflect an inner silence and you don't disturbing other people by your chatter. Especially, I mean, the Tibetan practice requires a lot of time. So what we try to do is to allow them the whole day and much of the night, it just spent in immersing the whole mind and heart in one's practice, so one becomes the practice mm. and without having to piecemeal it out, you know, to just sections, you know, you become one, you're swimming in an ocean of practice. It helps very much with inner transformation. To go beyond the duality between the practitioner and the practice. One tries at this point to give the opportunity for that to happen. That's the most we can do. I have to say that the nuns themselves really take it very seriously. And um, I'm really impressed because many of them are really quite still young teenagers. And yet they completely dive in to the practice. And of course, the group of them together, all practicing, that also gives a special energy, which is why it's good, especially at the beginning, to do group retreats at kind of special energy from all those around you also. 
Yeah. What's the, the ethnic and cultural makeup of the nuns there in the abbey? Are there Westerners and Indians and Europeans, Tibetans? They're Himalayans. There are some Tibetans. We have about 120 nuns and maybe 15 of them are Tibetans. But nowadays, people are not coming from Tibet anymore. The borders are closed. So no newcomers are coming from Tibet. The majority, the vast majority are made up of girls coming from the Himalayan regions. Politically, geographically, they're India, but culturally, spiritually, they're Tibetan, like Ladakh. Arunachal Pradesh on the other side. Also, we have quite a few Bhutanese, Nepalis, and and so forth. So they're all from the Himalayan villages. There's no Western nuns. The Lingua Franca is Tibetan. They all speak uh, fluent Tibetan. And can you talk about what motivates a young woman to become a nun today? Well, you know, I was speaking with the nuns yesterday. You know, one of the things I always ask when you first come is why do you want to be a nun? Often they kind of go, <laughs> you know, but then some of them say, I want to be happy. Some of them say, oh, I look at my mother, my aunts or sisters. I thought, no, I don't want that life. I want to do something meaningful with my life. And so I want to study Dharma and in that way benefit beings. And when said that when she was with nuns, she felt happy. So she thought if she became a nun, that would make other people happy. Their reasonings are fairly um, simple, but then they come when they're quite young. But there are some cultures where, as with the Catholic culture, to be a nun or a monk is quite normal. Uh, it's not anything strange. Some of them, their families didn't want them to be nuns. And they said, we'll finish your education. Then if you still want to be a nun, okay. Occasionally, especially with the Tibetans, they ran away from home to enter a nunnery. But generally, the parents bring them along and they're, they're happy to. Because nowadays, nuns have a status which they never had before. Now the nunneries, not just our nunnery, but all nunneries now, mostly offer a good educational program and the whole idea of what a nun can do has really transformed in the last 20 or so years. Mm -hmm. So it's a good life option for these girls. And you've been an important part of making this a greater option for women today. Well, it's, it's happening everywhere. I mean, not just in the Tibetan circles, but also in Theravada Buddhism and elsewhere, that there's a real education is the key. And once nuns become educated, they begin to think for themselves. They begin to get a sense of self-worth. They stop praying just to be reborn as a male so that they can get on with it. They recognize that even in female form, there's nothing that they cannot do if they're given the opportunity. So things have really changed a lot in the last 20, 30 years, which is good for all Buddhism, not just for the women. Yeah. What you've just said reminds me of the famous quote that's inspired a lot of women that you've said you've made a vow to attain enlightenment in the female form, no matter how many lifetimes it takes. Can you talk a little bit about why you made that vow? Well, because the view always given at that time 
was that, of course, to be a human was a good thing, but nonetheless, in order to really make progress on the path, you needed a male body. And in many ways, that was true because it was to the males that all the opportunities were given for education and for deeper practices and attention, just noticing that you're there, you know. So therefore, there are so many male teachers. And even today, if you say in Tibetan Buddhism, what about the female teachers? Dikishi Sojal, Machik Labdran, Memo. If you can do one hand, you're already ahead of the game. Whereas the male teachers are like stars in the sky. So therefore, it seemed obvious that there was already more than enough males out there. What we needed was to travel the path as a female and, and as many females as possible out there, showing that there's really no difference. Good in nature is not male or female. Women are absolutely as capable of realizing the past as the males. And the only way to do that is to be a female and realize the past. So it seemed obvious. I mean, if there ever comes a time when the females are the most strong and the males have dwindled, then they come back as a male. Then you'll already be enlightened if you keep your vow. Ultimately, there's no difference. We all know that. But on a relative plane in which we live, there has always been a big difference. Yeah. And that is why it's necessary to um, promote a feminine. Particularly in Buddhism, I think when people like myself first hear about sexism in Buddhism, you really scratch your head because the religion is founded on this idea that a loving all beings, compassion for all beings, all beings are equal in their capacity for enlightenment and our attitude to all beings should be equal. So how can that attitude coexist with sexism? Well, I mean, right from the time of the Buddha, there was already a problem. And the nuns, Vinaya, the monastic code was already very much slated in the direction of making nuns subordinate to the monks. And I think that as time went on, that division grew because if the monks were given the opportunities and the education and the nuns were denied it, then naturally the divide would come. Plus, I think it's not just on the male side. Females are just as guilty. If you have a, a group of monks and a group of nuns and you only have limited resources, who will you sponsor? A woman will sponsor the monks. Even in America, this is true today. The monasteries are much better supported than the nunneries. And who is supporting them? Mostly women. Right? So it's not just that the men have taken all the glory. It's also they have been very much encouraged in that by their female supporters. And social conditions being what they are in all these countries, not just in Asia, but in the West, the same. Women had their own role to play, but it was a subordinate role to the males. For example, in my mother's time, and that's not going back to Queen Victoria, women could be nurses. They didn't become doctors. They didn't become lawyers, architects, and so forth. Very few. Compared with that was considered a good role for the males. So it's not just back with Asia. It's a global phenomena that women in general 
played a much more subordinate role in society and likewise in Buddhist society. So now when there is much more equal education, especially in Asia, as well as in the West, then nuns likewise coming up. So if we want to help the cause, it sounds like maybe you'd suggest giving to and supporting the abbeys. Um... Because the, the nuns struggle. So Vasily Abbey, which is excellently run by the Venerable Children, has been really very successful because the whole program is so excellent there. But nonetheless, compared with the monasteries, it's much less well-known and well-endowed than a monastic center for males would be. And also for the Theravadin nuns in America, they struggle for support compared with the monasteries, the Theravadin forest monasteries, which are really quite affluent. So I'm not complaining about that. This is just the way things are. It's always been that way. And as I say, women themselves have contributed to the situation. But it is very good if people do recognize that the nuns everywhere do need support. And they are very ethical. They are very focused, very intelligent, very devoted. You know, it's not like they're stupid or lazy or in any way just faking it. So it would be good to encourage them with your gratitude and support just for the life they're leading, which is often very renounced in the midst of even Western affluence. That sense of joy in renunciation, joy in contentment with little. In a society which is so saturated with the idea that more is best and pleasure is equals happiness and sex is essential because otherwise you go weird, they show this complete nonsense. It's the other way around. Oh, I think you're absolutely right about that. It's actually one of the things that really greatly inspired me when I got into Buddhism here in San Francisco at Sei Chen Ling. There were, you know, three or four nuns. And I did, really did immediately feel that the, the purity and the strength and the devotion of practice and became very close friends. I really learned the Dharma, you know, more from the nuns, even than the Geshe, because they're accessible and present all the time and leading the meditations. That's the other thing too. You can approach them. And as you say, I mean, the geishas and the lamas are there, but it's much more difficult as a cultural divide. And especially also because nowadays the majority of practitioners are females. And if they have any problems, who can they go to? You know, you can't tell the geisha all your problems, but you can talk to the nuns because they've probably been through it themselves and they can give you some good down-to-earth advice on how to deal with life. Can you talk about what, what happens to the nun? Do they tend to get through the entire course at your abbey? And then once they leave, you know, how do their lives progress? And what happens to them? Well, this is a nunnery. They don't leave. I mean, they can leave. It's not a women's prison, right? If you want to leave or just walk out, nobody's stopping you leaving. But very, very few nuns leave. The dropout rate for nuns is very small compared to monks. They have a 10-year study program. Then they do a 2 years tantric program. 
And then after that, they've graduated. So then what they want to do, many of them choose to go into a long-term retreat, at least three-year retreat. Others become teachers. Before, we had to get teachers in from other nunneries. Law graduated from their own nunneries. They would come and become the teachers. Now they are leaving, going back to their own nunneries, and our nuns are becoming the teachers. So our nuns are teaching the other nuns. And then we also, not now because we're in lockdown, but normally we have a guest house, we have a cafe, we have a medical center and various other different things for nuns to um, work at. And also there are various roles within the nunnery, like disciplinarians, scorekeepers and so forth, which rotate every year. And then the senior nuns take those roles. I mean, it is a nunnery, it's not just a study center. And that's very good news because there is a crisis among some of the monasteries where the boys, they come more for the education and leave at age 16, 17, and they're having trouble filling the ranks and completing the programs. It's a big problem in all the monasteries. But I think for the nuns, I mean, with all respect, you know, you're, you're a teenage boy. Then you think, okay, now what? If I leave, then, you know, I can get some kind of job, make some money find some nice girl, you know, she'll keep me warm at night, you know, she'll do the cooking and cleaning. It sounds pretty good. Why not? But the girl has to think, if I need the nunnery, then I have to get a job or do field work, then I have to get married, then I have to do the cooking and the cleaning, the baby every year. And she, oh, I think I'll stay where I am. So she has much more fun in the nunneries. Tibetan nunneries are great fun. You know, the nuns are always laughing and very cheerful. And they actually enjoy themselves as well as dedicating themselves to study and practice. But they do it, you know, there's a lot of laughter there, a lot of joy. In all nunneries, not just our nunnery, the, the fallout rate for nuns is much less than the fallout rate nowadays for monks. Because also the nowadays, in the monasteries, you know, iPhones and you're on the internet and so forth. So their minds are very distracted. And they have all this interconnection with what's going on out there, which if you don't know what's really going on out there. People report that they see, even during pujas, that the monks under the table are playing around with their iPhones. And in class, it's also the teachers complain in the monasteries. But for example, in our nunnery, although many of their parents give them iPhones to contact them, we have a rule that during the week, they give their iPhones to the disciplinarian and then they get them back on Sunday. So on Sunday, they can contact their friends and their family if they want to. But the rest of the week, they don't have them. And that way, they don't get distracted. I mean, you have to think, what would the Buddha have done? The fact there's no rule about it doesn't mean that we can't make a rule. The Buddha would have taken your iPhone away. He would have said, no, monks, I think maybe iPhone's not a good idea. Because it's a distraction. Because it becomes an addiction. Yeah, yeah. And that's going in the opposite direction to where monk's mind is supposed to be going. There needs to be some understanding about what being a monk is all about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You started at a really difficult time for women in Buddhism and, and faced a lot of 
extreme sexism, even being deprived of access to the teachings you came to study <laughs> in the monastery. How have things improved and what still needs to be improved for women in Buddhism? Well, I mean, certainly in the nunneries, as I say, things have improved beyond thought, really. I think what happened with two things was one that Western nuns, like the children and Tom Ambassador, etc., they went to India, they were studying at the School of Dialectics and they were learning debates and so forth. And the nuns who had been told, the Tibetan nuns who had been told that nuns can't debate, that women couldn't debate because we don't have that kind of mind and we're not aggressive enough. They said, how come you are debating and we cannot? And they said to them, you can And then they got senior students to start teaching the nuns. So that was one side of it that the nuns began to get confidence that they could debate. And at the same time, in the secular world, in the Tibetan school system, the girls were doing extremely well and often going to college and so forth, showing that women were perfectly intelligent, even though in Vajrayana, wisdom is female, Mm -hmm. but they didn't quite catch on to that bit. But now the girls were showing that they were totally intelligent. Therefore, the question was, if in the secular world, women show their intelligence, how come it's not happening in the monasteries? So then gradually with the Tibetan nuns project and others, they began to invite geshes and kempos to come and teach the nuns. And once they started, they really loved it because the nuns were so focused and they were so like dry sponges just soaking up the liquid of the Dharma. So they became very enthusiastic. So once they recognized that it could happen, of course, it just took off. You couldn't stop it anymore. And now, of course, there are female geshes, there are kenmos, and so forth. And now more and more nuns are teaching nuns. Once you get that education, you also get the confidence to recognize your own intelligence is there, but you're not inferior. People are not not teaching you because you're stupid, Mm. right? It's just you got overlooked. But now you're not overlooked anymore. And so, you know, the road ahead is clear. Mm. So it's been wonderful in these years to see these wonderfully bright young women coming up. Like before they were buds, like a rosebud. And because they were not watered, the soil was very hard. There was no sunshine of approval. There was no water of the teachings. So they lived and died as withered buds. They never opened. Whereas now they're opening up and showing how beautiful they are. And, and the scent of the Dharma is just woofing from all these nunneries now. And would you have any advice for female lay Buddhist practitioners or observations, how opportunities have changed for them over time? Well, I think that now that in the West, for example, where the vast majority of people in the Dharma centers are female, the Lamas themselves have recognized that they can no longer give this rather misogynic message and that many of their brightest and most devoted students are the women. Highly educated, highly articulate, and very devoted. So I think now that the gap between the male and female is more or less closed as far as that is concerned, that anything the boys can do, the girls can do, of course they can. And the message is always, you know, on that ultimate level, 
but there's no male or female. And many of the best teachers in the West are, are women. So it's changed. And it's interesting that Buddhism is always talking about change, but it resists it like anything. But things will change. And because for the nuns now, the next big barrier to overcome is that of higher ordination. That's a wall that they, you get. Very interesting how much resistance there is to the idea of nuns being fully ordained as the Buddha himself wished. You know, the fourth Sangha, he's always talking about the fourth Sangha. Yeah. They don't want the four-fold Sangha. They want the three-fold Sangha, three-and-a-half-fold Sangha. And can you explain what the four-fold Sangha is for people that who aren't familiar with that term? Sure. That means fully ordained monks, fully ordained nuns, lay men, and lay women. So it's a monastic and lay sangha together. He said it was like a table with four legs or a chair with four legs, very stable. And also the Buddha said that as long as the fourfold sangha, that means the monastics and lay people together, are studying and practicing and preaching the Dharma, the Dharma will flourish. He didn't just say monks. Right. He said the fourfold sangha. And even straight after his enlightenment in a talk with Mara, who represents the forces opposed to an awakening, he said that his purpose was to establish the fourfold Sangha. So right from the start, that was his purpose. It wasn't that, you know, nuns were foisted on him. He already had that vision that there would be that balance between the monastics and the lay of both genders. Yeah. When we began this conversation, you said, you know, regardless of your gender, everyone has a fundamental goodness. Everyone has Buddha nature. Also in Vicki McKenzie's book, you talk about having a very deep intuition that this was true too in your own life from an early age. Can you talk about what this is for people less familiar with that idea of Buddha <laughs> nature or our our fundamental goodness. What is that? And how can we feel conviction in that fundamental goodness and get back in touch with it? Well, in one way, the whole point of meditation is to come back to uh, our genuine nature again. It's called the nature of the mind. Mind here meaning not the brain, but the nature of our fundamental consciousness. And normally our problem, why we are stuck in this round of birth and death, sometimes happy, sometimes miserable, churned up and down on the ocean, is because we identify with our conceptual thinking mind. And we think, this is who I am. All my thoughts, my feelings, my memories, my anticipations, my plans, this is me. And so from a spiritual point of view, we are identifying with all the wrong things. I would say that in all genuine spiritual traditions, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, the mystical traditions have always understood that there is something innate within us mm. which is blocked by identification with a small self. What we need to do is to dissolve that small self, to open up to a whole different level of consciousness, which is our true nature, who we really are. 
And that is sometimes described as being like the sky, like space, because you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't taste it, but it's all pervading. And our problem is that we just see the clouds. Mm. We are identifying with the clouds. When we look at our mind, we see the clouds, but we don't see the sky. And so what we need is to come back to that basic essential nature, which is a non-dual consciousness. Normally, we are caught up in our dualism. There's me and everybody else out there who is not me. And so the sense of separation always, and that we reify our reality, our thoughts, and apparent external phenomena. We think each bit is very separate, very different, very individual to itself. Neuroscience is very interesting nowadays, I have to say, because they are also now exploring the nature of consciousness. Absolutely. And in the consciousness is not the brain, which is a huge step forward for them because before it was very mechanistic. If you couldn't get it on the machine, it didn't exist. Now they're recognizing that the brain is a wonderful tool, but it's not the energy running the tool. So our essential nature is described as being empty, meaning that it's open and spacious and you can't hold it. You can't cling to it. But at the same time, it is this fundamental clarity and knowing nature of the mind. We all know. We are aware. All of us. So we all have that nature the whole time. It's not that we have to develop it. What we need to do is to recognize it. Because we have to become conscious of being conscious. And in that level of consciousness, which is non-dualistic, it is also interconnects us with everything so that we recognize everything is interdependent. It's not separate little copios. We're not separate. Actually, with everything is, is intrinsically interconnected. And that is a whole different level of our consciousness. And that has no male, no female. Doesn't even have human and animal. Because animals also have Buddha nature. I talked to Dr. Rick Hansen about this and he said that fundamental goodness and satisfaction, in some ways you can see more in an animal because when the animal has their food and a comfortable place, they're absolutely satisfied. <laughs> they're not fantasizing about <laughs> what else they need. So maybe on that level, yeah. we see that Buddha nature in animals. All beings have Buddha nature. That's yeah. the whole point. Why? Because all beings are conscious. Mm-hmm. And it is just our fundamental level of non-dualistic primal consciousness, which is what we're talking about. It's nothing magical. And that's why it's sometimes said that it's so simple that we miss it. Because we're expecting great bliss and lights and luminosity. And, and it's not. It's so simple, like space. But space contains everything. Without space, nothing could exist. And that's like the mind. The nature of the mind is so vast and open and spacious that everything can come to be within it. But we don't recognize that. It's like going into a room and you see the furniture and and all the decorations, but you don't see the space. Can you talk a little bit about how a person could get through to that non-duality 
and seeing the spaciousness and getting beyond reification, especially an ordinary person, not a professional monk or nun. I mean, our, our big problem is that we get lost within our thoughts and feelings. It's like we're in a river or in a, a sea and we're completely engulfed in the water. And if you think of an ocean, then the waves go up, the waves go down, and we're always on the wave level. We never go deeper than that. And so sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down, sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. So the Buddha said, you need a raft, right? And the raft is our mindfulness. But mindfulness just means being aware and having a sense of presence and unknowing. Instead of getting lost and distracted, we become more conscious. And we, anybody can do this in, in one second. We, we can either we swept along or else we are aware of what's going on. And so the Buddha to help us said in the beginning, because the mind's so crazy, it might be difficult to observe the mind. Start with something easier, the breath. Why? Because we're always breathing. But we cannot breathe in the past. We cannot breathe in the future. We only can breathe now. So if we are really aware of the breath, just aware of the breath as it comes in and out, in that moment, we're present. And so this is like something which holds us, catches us. And then gradually through, even during the day, we can learn how to be more conscious. You know, the mind's getting more crazy or we're very tired or depressed or anything, just bring them the attention back to breathing. I mean, it's so simple and it doesn't require any great philosophical knowledge mm. or any great meditational skills, just requires the determination to as much as possible, even for a minute or two, to just be here. All right. In this moment and breathing, then What's going on in the mind? What are the feelings? Where do these emotions feel in the body? What is the body feeling in this moment? And then gradually making the awareness wider. What sounds, what sensations, what's happening outside as well as what's happening inside? Anybody can do that. Mm. It's not that it's difficult. The problem is we don't do it. <laughs> And this is why retreats are useful. Yeah. They give the discipline and the guidance for helping people to experience, taste that they can do this. Yes. I actually, I, I, I also can meditate. They get infused. Mm -hmm. And a big obstacle to this for people, of course, is our own, our strong attachments and our strong fears. So, for example, the, the pandemic for so many people is a, is a big struggle. And especially now, as it seems to have, it almost seemed like we were cresting the pandemic, at least in the United States, where we're lucky to have the vaccines. But what would you say to people who are now feeling more despair that this is never going to be over? There's so much suffering. Children are getting sick. Other countries aren't getting equal access to the vaccine. How do people deal with large, difficult, seemingly insoluble problems like this? First of all, this is samsara. <laughs> This is around the births and deaths. We are simply getting back what we ourselves have created. We have messed up this planet. 
we have completely messed up our relationships with animals and with other humans. And because of our own greed and aggression, we are where we are now. And if it wasn't now, it was in the past that really human beings have been very irresponsible. Of course, if you look at history, we've always had a hard time. If it wasn't one thing, it was something else. People are always saying this is the worst time. It was much better than I was young. And thousands of years they've been saying that. The other point is that, as Shanti Davis said, if there is a solution, why worry? And if there is no solution, worry doesn't help. Right? Yeah. Just worrying doesn't help others, doesn't help oneself, doesn't help the situation at all. We have to accept this is how it is right now. It is very noticeable, Scott, that people who have some kind of spiritual practice have almost welcomed this pandemic, <clears throat> not for the, the suffering that is caused, but for the space it has given in their own personal lives, that they can't go to work, they can't socialize, they can't run around, they can't get distracted. So they have more time to practice. And also, of course, nowadays, many teachers have stepped up and are doing a lot of online teaching far more than they ever did before. So many people now are Zooming and YouTubing and whatever, podcasting, <laughs> and are learning so much because now many of these teachers are out there giving talks, running courses, and so forth. And people have time now to do this. So for many people, not only in the Buddhist world, but in, in other spiritual traditions also, they have actually benefited from this very, very challenging time. The people I feel the most concerned for are the children mm -hmm. because during this very critical time in their lives, they've been separated and that the social interaction is not the and, and that, I think, for the future, it's going to be very interesting what kind of adults they turn into. That whole band of millions of young people who have been this time so arrested in their development and, and often in very threatening domestic situations also. Everybody's caught together. So, But individually, then this is a time to recognize, yes, there is no security in samsara. We think we've got it all tacked out nicely. I've got everything worked out. I'm going to do this and that's going to happen. Then this, and now it's all blown away, you know, and we have to see that the only genuine refuge is within ourselves because happiness and security are not out there and they never have been. We fool ourselves. It's not like that. But inwardly, if we genuinely cultivated in the practice that is a refuge no matter what is happening outside we have our own inner security so this is the point and if you have any belief system at all now's the time to bring it into operation and make sure that it works for you what else can you do this is how it is and, and complaining and getting upset and paranoid and all that it's just adding dukkha on top of dukkha suffering on top of suffering 
the Buddha said that there are two kinds of suffering. There's physical suffering, there's mental suffering. Physical suffering, you're going to have to experience because that's the nature of the physical. But mental suffering, that's a choice. We can choose to be depressed and upset and paranoid because of the external, or we can choose not to be. That's up to us. Even in the most awful situations, for example, when, you know, many amongst the mamas were in prison during the Cultural Revolution, and apart from the prison circumstances under the Chinese communists, also many of them were interrogated and tortured for years and years. They were in prison with no fault of their own. They had never done any crime, but they were in prison because of their view. 20, 30 years. And by right, they should have come out either broken or completely bitter and angry and justifiably. But so many of them came out just blissful. So much love, so much compassion. And saying how grateful they were for that situation because it taught them what genuine compassion really means, which they couldn't have learned if they just, life was raped as a, a nice and they were just sailing along. When you're with a challenge, that's when we show our strengths or not, isn't it? Yeah. You've kindly agreed to lead a meditation for us, which we'll play in the next episode for people listening. Can you talk a little bit about what that meditation is right now? Or we can leave it a surprise and just have you guide it. The essence of practice, Mm -hmm. meditation practice, is to cultivate awareness. Mm. And I think that this is the, the, the crux of the whole thing, is that we are not aware Mm. that we are endlessly distracted. And non-distraction is the essence of the path. So the meditation will just be on just a few little stages on how to cultivate our inner awareness. Because it's not just when you are on the meditation seat, but throughout the day, as much as we can remember, to bring ourselves back into the present. Mm. And the good thing with this is that it doesn't have anything per se to do with our religious beliefs. It's nothing to do with whether you believe in Buddhism or Christianity or anything. It's just to do with how to learn to be present and how to learn to be kind. Because along with that awareness, it should be a loving awareness, not just I am being very mindful, but with an open heart to recognize that all, everyone we meet would rather feel okay than not feel okay. Whoever they are and how difficult they are, in their heart they would like to feel good, you know, that life wouldn't be difficult for them. So just as I would rather be happy than miserable, everybody would rather be happy than miserable. And that empathy for all beings as we meet them, it's also a very essential part of any spiritual path and certainly of Buddhism that we, we cultivate this wish for the happiness and well-being of everyone, not just humans. What I really like about Dhamma is that it includes all beings, all living beings, not just 
the ones we like or our nation or our football team, everybody is included in this. And, and that includes all the animals who, as you said, like to be happy, right? I mean, animals want to be happy just as we want to be happy. And their idea of happiness is on a more physical level usually. But they also want to be loved. Mm-hmm. They also want to be appreciated. I mean, we were all animals. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom in this discussion today. It's really a privilege speaking with you. Um, very grateful. Thanks for taking that time with us. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for joining me in our conversation with Jetsunma Tenzin Palma. If you're interested to learn more about her teaching and activities, please visit her webpage at tenzinpalmo.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to our podcast. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization. All our content is free and ad-free, thanks to our generous donors. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. If you'd like to deepen this conversation, please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, where we can be found under the name Skeptic's Path. And we'd be grateful if you took a moment right now to review us in your podcast app. The reviews help new people discover our podcast. Thanks to Tara Anderson for producing and editing this episode, Christian Parry and Chris Bolton for audio mastering, and Jason Waterman for marketing and digital production. We wish you a wonderful day.